Let's have a word of prayer and then we can start it. Oh, Father, we, we so uh, understand uh, our need for you, our desperate need for you. Your word tells us apart from you, you we can do nothing. And yet we often go along our merry way doing something and not realizing, not acknowledging your truth. But Lord, this morning we acknowledge that we are in desperate need. Every person in this room has a need of some kind. And you are the answer to our needs. So Lord, we just want to prostrate ourselves before you and beg you to do a work in our lives. Be glorified, Lord, in our lives this morning. Bring us your truth. Let it mold us, shape us into the person that you want us to be. We'll give you the praise for it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you look at your handout, it looks exactly like it has the last five weeks. Somebody questioned the fact last week that maybe we had given out the the wrong handout. But it's going to look that way, uh, Lord willing, until we finish this series because I want to, I want us to see the progress that we're making. And, and the, right now we're working on the, the left side of that diagram, redemption accomplished. And we're looking at what the Lord had to do to bring us to the point of, of saving us, okay? And so today we're going to deal with reconciliation, redemption, and, and conquest. And then next week, or the next time we get together, we'll talk about the sufficiency of the atonement and the extent of the atonement. Sufficiency is awfully important right now. John MacArthur has said that in, in our day and time, the, the thing that Satan is working at the most is to question the sufficiency of Christ's atonement. That it's got to be Christ plus the saints, Christ plus good works, place, you know. So we're going we're gonna to spend some time on the sufficiency of the atonement and then the extent of the atonement. And that's when I'm going to build a ball around me, I guess, so that if you throw eggs at me, I'll have some protection. But we'll just take it straight out of the Word of God and it will be truth. And then we'll start down the right-hand side and hopefully by this time next year we'll be through but I know that's not, not going to be the case. Right down below that, we talked last week about this little diagram or whatever you would call it, illustration. The good pleasure of the Lord will be fulfilled in the life of a submissive child. The good pleasure of the Lord. You know, we're going to all stand before the Lord one day and we're all going to want to hear well done, good and faithful servant. You know, that's, that's the, the, the goal of our lives. When we're saved, God puts us on a path. We've talked about this numerous times. Okay? Ephesians 1.4 says that he cho we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And he, he had a path. He had a plan for us way back when we were not even born. So he puts us on this path 
which becomes our path. Okay? God knows our weaknesses. God knows our strengths. He knows what he wants to do with our life. He knows where we're going to get off the path and need some to get back on. He knows all these things. So God's path becomes our path. And very often we don't really realize that this is going on. But because it's God's path and it's our path designed just for us, it's the right path. That's what the diagram says. It's the right path. Oh, I've got cancer. You know, I just, no, that's the right path. Oh, I just lost my job. You know, God's out of control. No, that's the right path. Everything that he allows to come in our lives, he does for a purpose. To mold us and shape us, you know, into the life of his, into the image of his son. So that's the right path, regardless of circumstances. God's path becomes our path, the right path, and if we will submit to that, in the end, he will accomplish his will for us. And that he promises. Uh, Psalm 138.8, I love this. He says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Psalm 138.8. You know, we don't have to worry about, am I making the right decision, wrong decision? I mean, we, those things come up and we have to work through them and we have to go to the word and we have to find out which direction we should take. But as long as we are open and willing and, and, and using the means of grace that God gives us, he will keep us on that path. And in the end, we'll have well done, good and faithful servant. Okay, let's do a little bit of a review. Each week, we're going to do a little bit of a review on what we've covered because we need to understand the progression that we're talking about. Okay? One of the reasons, excuse me, one of the reasons that we want to do this study is so that in a given period of time, we can go from A to Z on what God has done, how he has saved us, and what that means in our lives. You know, we get little snippets of it here and there along the way. But we want to do it to help you understand all the, the, the big picture of what God has done in your life. So we looked at the cause of atonement. Now, of course, man has fallen. He's in, he's in need of a savior. We understand that. What, but what caused God to be willing to atone us, to, to buy us back, to pay the price? Well, God's love and justice were both the cause and the source of Christ's atonement. It is the love of God that moves him to save us, and it is the justice of God that ensures he will accomplish salvation in a manner consistent with his holiness. That's very important. Our Father is once and for all completely satisfied with the atonement that he has provided for us. Okay, the necessity of the atonement. The law had proved that no human could attain to the righteous standard of God's, the God's holiness desire. Excuse me, demanded. To attain this status, God must become man pay the penalty that man's sin demanded to restore fellowship between God and man. As an act of God's grace through faith, 
man could be united with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and receive the imputed righteousness of Christ. You know, you say, well, why, you know, why couldn't God just have snapped his fingers and everybody would be saved? We have to understand that, 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 that God's holiness had to, had to be in play. His, he, had, we, he had to save us in a way that would... Uh, uh, I can't get the word I want. That would be in, in accord with his holiness. You know? um, remember in the garden, Jesus said, you know, God, if it's possible, let this... Uh, let this pass from me. You know, let's do it another way. Let's go to plan B. And it was very obvious that, that there was no plan B. This was the only way. And it would take a month of Sundays or more to, to, to really delve into the fact that it had to be a blood atonement. There had to be a sacrifice. And we, we, we talked about that in the past when we covered it. Then we got into the nature of the atonement. And we've we, we covered the first two points last week, the substitutionary sacrifice. Okay? The most basic fundamental description of a sacrifice is one of a substitutionary sacrifice. It can be ascribed to the atonement. Let me back up, I'm just fumbling. The most fundamental description one can ascribe to the atonement is that it is a work of penal substitution. It's important words. On the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty. That's where we get penal from. He paid the penalty. He suffered the penalty on the cross for his... Boy, this is going to be a bad morning if I can't talk. On the cross, Jesus suffered the penalty, which is a penal, for the sins of his people, substitution. And this is the core doctrine of our faith. Without the penal substitution, substitutionary atonement, we have no, we have no hope. Okay, uh, it's like the virgin birth. You don't have a virgin birth. You don't have a gospel. You don't have penal, You don't have sacrificial uh, substitution. You don't have a gospel. Second Corinthians five twenty one. You'll all be familiar with this. He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, become uh, sin for us on our behalf, that we may become the righteousness of God in him. The great exchange, right? Our sin for his righteousness. Now, that's not a bad, bad swap, is it? I mean, that's the greatest bargain we've ever gotten in the world. Okay. And then we talked about propitiation. Another big word. By receiving the full exercise of the Father's faith against the sin of his people, Christ satisfied God's righteous anger. God's anger is not like yours and mine. His anger is righteous. It is holy. It is just. Christ satisfied God's righteous anger against sin and thus turned away his wrath from us who, had it not been for our substitute, were bound to suffer it for ourselves. Okay? God's anger has been satisfied completely. He has no anger or wrath to vent against us. It was all done to Christ in that three hours. 
three hours on the cross. First John 4.10 says, And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay? That's a settled fact. God's not mad at us anymore. You know, the scripture says that if, if you are not a believer, if you've not placed your faith in Christ and Christ alone, you stand before the Lord, you're going to cry for the mountains to cover you. It's going to be the most horrific day of a life. When, when, a, when a sinner comes before true, holy God, something's going to give, and it's not going to be him. That's why we have to be prepared for that day. That's why we have to know beyond a doubt that we have placed our faith in Christ. Two things can happen at that point. God's, God's a righteous judge, and, and you know, we, we talked about Ezekiel 18, 4, wasn't it? Uh, you know, every sin will be judged. And on that day, there will be two, two, two options. Your sin it will still be on yourself because you've never trusted in Christ. And you will receive, listen to this, for all eternity, you will receive the horrific wrath of God because of your sin. On the other hand, if you have come to the place of trusting in Christ, when you get to that point, he will step forward, forward and he will say, Father, I paid the price. He owes nothing. He is perfectly. I have given him my righteousness. He is, can be so he can be acceptable before you. Only two choices. But you can't make the decision then. You know, it's too late by that time. You have to make it today. Okay. Um, as Dan would say, that's the introduction. So now we get into the new stuff. We're going to talk about reconciliation. There was alienation between God and man that has is overcome. And reconciliation, the alienation between God and man, is overcome and peace is made. Now that's a tremendous thing to know that we have peace with God. My goodness, what a place. Man's sin has not only brought guilt on the part of man, but has aroused the wrath of God and affected enmity and alienation between God and man. We're talking about two different things. We're talking about guilt, which is taken care of on the cross, but also we're talking about um, alienation from God because of that. Such alienation is seen throughout the scriptures, but the account of Adam and Eve uh, highlights man's problem. You remember Adam and Eve uh, had a relationship with God like no one else. Sinless perfection allowed them to, to see God face to face and to fellowship with him. And it was a, it was a glorious, glorious time. Okay. But such alienation uh, was broken with, with the sin. Um, there had never been a, another relationship like the one that Adam and Eve shared with God. But then the tragedy came when the pair disobeyed God's command and sin entered the world, causing a breach between God and man. 
that must be atoned for by an acceptable sacrifice. Don't overlook the fact that we keep talking about acceptable sacrifice, okay? Because that's, that's the key. It had to be a sacrifice that was acceptable to God. Okay, so no sooner had man sinned that we read in Genesis 3.8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, I want to stop halfway through that. And I, most of y'all are too young to remember the days before air conditioning. But I do. And uh, it was hot. We lived right on the coast. Hot. The humidity was always astronomical, okay? And the days were just, just, just hot beyond belief. But in the evenings, we had a screen porch on the side of our house. And in the evenings, we delighted to go out to that porch and hopefully there would be a breeze, and very often there was. And that was the most delightful thing. It was restful. We were finishing up a day's work. It was restful. It was peaceful. And it was just a delightful situation. And that's what I think about when I read this. They heard the sound of the Lord God moving in the garden in the cool of the evening. It must have been a beautiful, I mean, far better than my screen poetry, okay? It was a delightful thing, you know, beyond anything that we can experience until we get there. But this particular day when they heard, it says that his wife, uh, the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Lord God among the trees in the garden. Something had happened. Guilt had entered their life. Their innocence was destroyed and the relationship between God and man uh, was marred beyond any human ability to repair. Their immediate instinct was to hide from the presence of the Lord and to avoid his fellowship. It would eventually take the death and resurrection of the Son of God to restore the perfect relationship that they had. That was the price that would have to be paid to restore that relationship. Um, have you, I don't say have you, when you, because I know you all have done it, but I've done it, if I've done it, you've done it too, I'm sure. You're at odds with somebody, and the last thing you want to do is to come face to face with them. You know, we ought to feel that way about God if we, if we don't know him. And if we do, have you, have you ever sat down to pray and um, these things come to mind? Well, I, sh I should have done this, should have done that. And you can't, you don't have the, the courage hardly to, to face God, you know, until you get that thing settled. You must believe how Adam and Eve felt in that situation. Another vivid illustration is the tabernacle and the temple. You know, in the, in the tabernacle, of course, the, God's presence, the Shekinah glory, resided in the temple, in the, um, in the uh, tabernacle and in the temple also. And there were three divisions in, the, in that temple. The first one was the outer court in which 
you and I could come to, to bring our sacrifice and turn it over to the priest. Then there was a holy place where only the priest could go and where the sacrifice was offered. But then in the midst of all that was the Holy of Holies. And no one could enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The picture of this, the purpose of this illustration really was twofold. The purpose of what God was trying to teach them was that sin had barred them from being able to get to him. There was, a, there was a veil that hung between the holy place and the holy of holies. And boy, if you went into that at the wrong time, the wrong person, you were struck dead instantly. Sinful man cannot approach holy God. That's what he was, te- was one of the things he was teaching us. And he was also teaching through that that, that uh, the only way that God had provided uh, for anyone to approach was through sacrifice, an acceptable sacrifice that was made on behalf of the, of the nation of Israel. So we see through these two illustrations that sin had affected God's, our relationship with God. We did not have the opportunity to go to God like, like we uh, should. And so God was showing us these things so that he could bring them to the point of obeying him, of offering the sacrifices in the Old Testament that he required, today for us to, to cleanse our, ourselves, to for, ask forgiveness, to make, uh, uh, I won't say atonement, we can't make atonement, but to, to get ourselves into a right relationship uh, with the Lord. Um, scripture I wanted to use and I can't get it to mind now. Sorry. Isaiah 52 9 says identifies the problem. It says your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face so that he does not hear you. Your sins have made a separation. But praise God He's provided for that separation to come down. You know, um, in uh, in New Testament, he says to come boldly before the throne of grace so that we can receive mercy and grace in time of need. Okay? God has, through his redemption, has given us the opportunity to come into his presence once more. I want to read Colossians 1, um, verses 19 through 22. He says, for it was the Father's good pleasure. I love that. God takes pleasure in doing things for us. It was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of the cross. Through him I say whether things in heaven or things on earth. But through him, he reconciled all things to himself. God has restored that relationship that was broken by sin.
when we trust Christ and uh, all that he has done for us. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, I love this, so that he might bring us to God. Here again, that relationship open. So as propitiation is the removal of God's wrath against sinners, so reconciliation is removal of God's enmity against sinners. It's important. Talk about redemption. I wish we had several weeks to spend on each of these. We just haven't hit the the mountaintops. All we can do. In redemption, those enslaved to sin are ransomed by the Lamb's blood. And we're going to talk about the language there in just a minute. I thought this was really interesting and helpful. This comes from MacArthur. He said, Christ's sacrifice removes the guilt and the penalty of sin. Propitiation satisfies and removes the righteous faith of God incurred by sin. Reconciliation removes the alienation and enmity incited by sin. And redemption redeems from the bondage of sin and the law through the payment of of Christ's shed blood as a ransom. So that, to me, just kind of gives me just a brief definition of each of those words and how they relate, and how they relate to us and to our salvation. Thinking, talking about the the, um, ransomed, again, MacArthur says, the most significant implication of characterizing Christ's atonement as redemption is that redemption language is fundamentally commercial. Now that's something that may not relate to us today, but he says the Greek terms here used mean marketplace. To redeem is really to purchase out of the marketplace. Other terms mean purchasing by payment of a ransom. But to purchase out of the marketplace, when when I say that, read that, I, what comes to my mind is a, a movie that I saw some years ago uh, Well, they had slaves on the block and they could, you could purchase those, you know. Um, but he purchased us from sin. He paid the price to get us off the block, so to speak. He paid the price for us. Christ has redeemed sinners out of slavery by paying the ransom price of his blood. The question is, to whom was the ransom paid? This is something I can remember when this came up some years ago. And uh, the opinion of the person I was dealing with was that the ransom was paid to to Satan. I mean, you know, Satan had us. He was, we were captives of his. But that is, I mean, that just made my skin crawl to think of such a thing, you know. God is not holding to Satan in any way. Um, some logically conclude that the ransom was paid to save him. That is wrong. The ransom of Christ's blood was paid to God, whose holiness demanded a just payment. God was the one who had been offended, and the penalty was to be paid to him. Ransom 
from the wrath, wrath of God. You know, they um, ask who, who um, Christ saved us. Who did he save us from? You know, did he, you know, immediate thought is, well, he saved us from Satan, you know, and he did. But the real answer to that question is that he saved us from the wrath of his father. That's, that's the thing that he, he saved us for. And I hope over the last weeks you've come to, to understand that. Sinners have found themselves in bondage to sin in Romans 6, 6. And Christ has ransomed them by the payment of the ransom price, which was his life. Matthew 20, 28 says, The Son of God did not come in the world, going to come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 6.20, you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 1.18 and 19, you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. He paid a horrific price to ransom us. And then lastly, look for just a few minutes at the conquest. Sin, death, and Satan were defeated by the power of our Savior. We see Satan active sometime in our lives or in our circumstances. And God still has him around for his use him, I guess, in our lives. But we always need to remember that God's got him on a leash. Satan cannot do anything that God does not allow. And God does not allow anything that does not work for our good if we are, if we are believers and put our faith in him. And the pain, in paying the penalty of sin and freeing his people from sin and death, Jesus also accomplished a victory of conquest over Satan and the rulers, the authorities, and spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, he, he's come close to what Genesis said, that, that uh, the Savior would crush Satan's head, and that he will do. Jesus himself said that one of the purposes of his coming was to destroy the works of the devil. Overcoming the penalty and the power of sin in the lives of his people is the triumph of Satan over Satan. That's the triumph of Satan. He also removed the ground of Satan's accusations against us. Satan has no grounds by which he can accuse us now before the Father. Of course, Scripture tells us that's one of his main functions is to accuse us. And all of that has been taken away. We have, if, if for believers, that has been taken away. You know, everything, Christ has, 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 uh, has given us his righteousness. We don't have a righteousness that can stand, but Christ gives us his righteousness so that we can stand before God. You know, in the end, Christ came to make us right with God, and he came to defeat our enemy. And that takes on a lot of different. Applications. 
But on the back of your sheet there, it says that Jesus identified his purpose for the incarnation in part to the fact that he came to destroy the works of the devil and to reconcile all things to himself. What I'd like for us to do, we will have time to do it, is to, I should have put a line down the middle of your page and I didn't. I have two, two lists here. The first one, destroy the work of the devil, based on 1 John 3.8. The second column, reconciling all things to himself. What I'm going to do, I'm going to read very slowly through Romans 6. And I'd like for you to chart that for me. We will see where Christ has, has defeated the enemy. We're going to see where he's reconciled us to himself. You probably won't have time. I know you won't have time to write the verse out, but maybe you could just write the reference, you know, verse 6, verse 7, whatever. And then I think it would be interesting to go back after this and, and look at that and see Break it out that way and see what Romans 6 tells us. Okay. You ready? Some of these, of course, won't, you won't be able to chart on either side, but most of them you will. Chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue, cons are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Okay, that we were united with, with Christ. This is part of the reconciliation. Right? Therefore, we have been buried with Christ through baptism into death. Why? So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we will be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let our responsibility, do not let sin reign in your body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourself to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members to sin, just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members to, as slaves of righteousness, resulting in sanctification. We'll pause there for just a minute before we finish, but you know that. We've studied these past weeks all of the things that God has done to redeem us. And the work that he's done is so that we can, we can be able to, we will be able to stand against the evil one. We'll be able to make the right decisions. He says to make yourself slaves of righteousness resulting in sanctification. You know, that's, that's how God has set us free. He's redeemed us. He lives within us by his Holy Spirit. And we have a responsibility to present the members of our body. You know, he's talking about our mind, our, our things that we're involved in, our thoughts, everything. Present them as slaves of righteousness. And when we do that, it's going to result in sanctification. And that's going to take us down the little path that we, we were talking about at the beginning. For you were slaves of sin, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? And when I, I sin, I do something wrong and Satan says you know if you do this you'll get this and of course that's always a lie I have to go back to this verse you know what benefit 
you know, we do what we do because we want what we want, right? What benefit were you receiving of the things which you're now ashamed of? I have to go back and say, Lord, what did I expect to get out of that, you know? And I know that, that, that uh, anything that he promised, uh, Satan has promised, is going to be a lie. You know, you know is it lioness that's always kicking the football and it, Lucy always grabs it out from a mountain? You know, and she, gets, she goes back time after time. That's what we do with Satan sometimes, with sin. What benefit, what fruit were you deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of such things is death. But having been freed from sin, that's what we're talking about. Jesus taking our sin, paying the price, reconciling us to God. God has propitiated. You've been freed from sin. Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. So we're going to be slaves to someone. It's either going to be Satan or it's going to be God, one of the two. And that's the way we should want it. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, this kind of covers what we've been talking about these past weeks about what God has done for us to prepare us to enable us to, to receive this salvation that he has for us. But we've got a responsibility too and we have to make sure that we follow that. He has established means of grace whereby we can and walk in victory and um, we need to discover those or we need to, to, to live in dependence on them make them alive in our lives Christ has paid an enormous price God has paid an enormous price to secure our salvation and we need to live in the good of it, remember? We need to live in the good of it. Rejoicing, thanking the Lord for what he's done and taking our responsibility and um, walking in submission to what he wants us to be. Okay. So next week we'll have a missionary to speak with you. We never met this guy You'll never forget him when you do. He's a great guy. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you now for your goodness to us and your faithfulness. Lord, all of these things that we've been studying,